morning. A bit of a challenge this morning. I left my glasses in Dollar, so <laughs> all that spares in the car. But uh, so, well, you can see me wearing glasses, but that means I can see you very well. Got my driving glasses, but not my reading glasses. But uh, we'll see how that uh, goes this morning. Please turn with me to. Hosea, we're going to be looking at chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now, I'm aware that uh, I did touch on chapter 6 last, last time, um, but uh, this morning, uh, on my message, I want to focus rather on the one whose message Hosea uh, is passing on to the people of Israel and also, of course, to us. Uh, now, of course, without my glasses, I'm not going to be able to read uh, the text. Uh, so I'll ask you to keep the text in front of you, chapter 6, 7, and 8, and we'll be referring to uh, various parts of it as we... Uh, as, as we go. I have a, a title to this message, The Judge Who Longs to Acquit the Guilty. So my focus is really on the theme that I see running through, not only through the whole uh, book, but particularly in this uh, particular section uh, I want us to, uh, to focus on, on the God and the way in which he, he speaks and what it reveals about his heart. And so the first thing I want, to, I want us to notice is that as we look at the book of Hosea, there is no doubt that God is a judge who judges justly. Some of these things we have talked about, that when God is dealing with us with regard to our sin and is accusing us, he does not make vague accusations. Because he's a just God, which means he must judge us according to his law, according to the law that he has revealed already to us, uh, rather than judging us on the basis of some influence that we think we've had with him, on the basis of bribery, on the basis of some very clever lawyer or whatever. He judges us according to his uh, justice. And so one of the things then that we see in the book right from the beginning is the way in which God specifies the charges and their consequences. So for example, in chapter 6, uh, the people uh, seem to be saying, come let us return to the Lord. But the way that God responds is quite clear that uh, 
they really haven't sorted out things appropriately with him. Uh, and so, almost in despair, he says, what shall I do with you, uh, Ephraim? And then he goes on to list the things of which they are guilty. So I want us to see that, that uh, um, when God pronounces judgment, it is with judgment, it's with justice. So when we're guilty, there's no one who is convicted who is innocent. We are convicted because of very specific charges. Uh, so therefore, for example, in uh, verse 7, which I can't quite see, uh, you can see that in your own chapter, chapter 6 and verse 7, uh, I think he talks there about uh, what he, uh, the way that he has uh, dealt with them. Maybe somebody, can, somebody with a loud voice can just read verse 7 you know, for us, verse 7 of, uh, chapter, of chapter 6. Thank you, thank you. I may have given you the wrong, the wrong verse. What about verse uh, 17? What does verse 17 say? What rating is this? Well, this is from a young man, so. <laughs> <laughs> an improvement, but not, uh, uh, not quite there. Well, in, I think it's in verse 17. Uh, what does verse 5 say? I think that's one which says, therefore, ah, something stronger. Try this and see. Which is it? Try it, just try Ah, great. This can go back, this can go back to a Miranda. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for that help. So, as I say in, in verse 4, uh, God, in his response to these efforts to make things right, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning mist. There is insincerity in which they try to deal with God. So you can't bribe God. So he says in, verse, in the next verse, Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgment, then my judgment go forth like the sun. Uh, so there is a, in, from verse 7 right up to chapter 8, if you read those, uh, those verses, they're basically a litany of accusations, specific accusations upon which God is going to pronounce his judgment on the people of Israel. So the principle there that I'm trying to get across is that when we think about our God, he doesn't do anything against us in terms of judgment when we're innocent. You know, sometimes people react in this way. When bad things happen to them, 
they say things like, whatever did I do against God that I should, he should treat me like this? And sometimes, even amongst Christians, they'll uh, go through a bad experience and maybe even stop coming to church because they feel like God has treated them unfairly. And it seems to me that the message that we find in Hosea is that God is never unfair when it comes to judgment. So all judgments are deserved. He is a just judge. He does not condemn anyone who is innocent. The next thing I want us to notice is that this judge cannot be tricked or bribed. Again, uh, when, we, uh, when we look at verse 4, the way that God reacts to, 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 the, to Israel as they try to make things right with God, is basically that their sacrifices simply do not cut it. That is not what is look, that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for a relationship, a relationship of love. If you could just turn to Isaiah, which is uh, a lot more specific as to what God thinks about sacrifices. Isaiah and chapter one. read from verse 10, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And I'm not, of course he's not, talking to, he's not talking to Sodom because Sodom, as you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, they are gone. But he's likening the people of Israel to this, this sinful city that was destroyed. So that is why that word is being used. It's almost like God, and God sometimes uh, uses words and language that we might call almost insults. Uh, there are quite a lot of things that God says when he's angry uh, that we might describe as insults, but he's really expressing his displeasure. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of the of our God, you people of Gomorrah. You can see there the the reference uh, to history. The multitude of your sacrifices, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. So here is a picture of people who are guilty as far as God's uh, law that touches the heart is concerned, but they're still continuing with their sacrifices. They're still continuing with their religion. And God says, I have more than enough of your burnt offerings. In a sense, these are the things that he prescribed. But they took that prescription, they removed it from the relationship that God desired to establish with them. I have more than enough of your burnt offerings, or rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And yet when you read the prescription in like in Exodus, in Numbers, in Leviticus, it talks about a fragrant offering pleasing to the Lord. But these people, the people who are offering these things, do not have a relationship with God. And so the point I want to make here is that this just God 
cannot be tricked or bribed through our rituals, through our sacrifices. As it says in, in, uh, in chapter 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The sacrifices were a means of relating to God. Just like uh, Abel and Cain, once the reading there says Cain was not accepted. The person was not accepted. It's, that is the reason why his sacrifice was not accepted. Abel was accepted. It was a relational thing. And then uh, his uh, sacrifice was, uh, was accepted. And we can see when Abel is, is offering his, uh, his gift to God, he does it very thoughtfully. He does it with a desire to please God. Well, as these people, it was just a desire to, to get it out of, the, out of the way, to just get the business out of the way. Now, these sacrifices just don't cut it. And in verse, four, verse 14 of chapter 7, these are now words. And sometimes we put too much, too much faith in our words. That if our words are very orthodox, then somehow... Uh, that makes our relationship with God okay. They do not cry out to me from the heart. It's very easy to say all the right words. But God who looks on the heart does not see that there is actually an appeal to him. And so that doesn't work. He sees the heart. They cry to me, but not from the heart. And so things are not put are not put right. Words without action. Chapter two, chapter eight, verse uh, verse two, for example. Israel cries out to me, "O oh, our God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good." So the point I'm making here is not just about the right words. Isaiah chapter 28 makes that very, very clear. And then the Lord Jesus, in, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says it's not about who cries, Lord, 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 you know, who stamps the stage and says, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. It's not about that. Those words need to relate to actions, the actions that are pleasing to the Lord, the way that we relate to him, the way that we think, the way that we behave, the way that we relate to other people, those are the things that God is concerned about. Not just having a nice formula of, uh, uh, of what we claim to believe. So when the Bible, for example, says that the, sick, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, it doesn't mean that that's what he goes around saying. It doesn't mean that he's necessarily an atheist who doesn't believe that there is a God. But he lives as if God does not exist. And that's what makes a person a fool. That he acts, he thinks, he relates, he does whatever, not because of his relationship with God, but as if God is not there, as if God does not matter. And these are the charges that are being brought against Israel in these, uh, in these passages, chapter 6, 7, and 8. So words without action, in the end, the Lord Jesus says, many who maybe put their trust, not in words, 
but maybe in experiences. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many wonderful things in your name. And he says, but I never knew you. We never had a relationship. So away from me. And they're described as wicked. Not because they went around beating old ladies on the head, but because the relationship with God was not right. And there was a disconnect between what they professed and what was in their heart. There was a disconnect because between what they claimed and what was real, what God could see in their hearts. But this is the main thing that I want us to, to focus on. And in a sense, the whole, the whole book ends on that note. That the judge throughout longs to redeem. The judge longs for restored relationship. And this is acted out in the first chapter in the way that uh, Hosea is instructed to reconcile I don't know whether there was a breach before, but in any case, to, to go into a relationship with a woman who would not have been recommended as marriageable material. Like, for example, when God is telling the priest to marry, he says, marry only a virgin of Israel. In this case, God says to Hosea, go and marry a woman of ill repute. So the judge longs to redeem. That's, that's the main thing that I want us to, to see, even as he, he speaks these very severe uh, charges against Israel and pronounces the, 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 the consequences and, and so on. It's because he longs to redeem. Chapter 13, sorry, verse 13 of chapter 7, for example. I trained them and strengthened them, but they plotted evil against me. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the wrong verse. Woe to them, verse 18, because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, because they have rebelled against me. But what is this desire? He says, I long, I long to redeem them. I long to redeem them. They are wayward. They do all kinds of things. They speak again. They speak lies against me. But on my part, I long to redeem them. That is what he that he says. And Isaiah, for example, which is a lot more straightforward, Isaiah chapter one and verse eighteen. You know, God says, "Come, let us reason together." And in a way, He's saying, "Even your sins." need not hinder the restoration of that relationship. Let me just read what uh, he says in, uh, in, in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, though all those charges might be true, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing 
and obedient, you eat the best from the land. God longs for restoration of that relationship. And when God steps into human history as our Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, his very name, his very name speaks of his desire to be reconciled to us. Jesus, Joshua, Savior. You call him Jesus because he saves his people. Because he's sent to save his people. And that speaks of the desire of God to redeem his own, even at his own expense. Even going through things that were really pretty messy, you know, as far as the law is concerned. A virgin conceiving, she's engaged. Can you imagine misunderstanding there? Can you imagine the consequences as far as the legalists were concerned? Just like that woman who was dragged before Jesus, she needs to be stoned to death. I mean, Mary could have been stoned to death. But it's all because he wanted to step into history. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God longs to redeem. And so Jesus cries out uh, as he looks at Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has rejected him, and Jerusalem has the consequences of that rejection pending. In AD 70, they were going to be destroyed by some Roman uh, commander. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. He longs to draw us to himself. Look, your house is left to you, desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The point I'm making simply there is this reveals something of the heart of God, his desire to acquit, if you like, to acquit the guilty. And part of the way that that expresses itself is that he warns, chapter 8, verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips, and eagle is over the house of the Lord. Because the people have broken my covenant. Yes, the people have broken his covenant. But there is this sounding of the trumpet. It's a warning of the judgment to come unless they are willing to come to him. Unless they are willing to be reconciled. So he warns. And as uh, I think it's Amos who says, uh, God does nothing without uh, if you like, giving advance warning through his, his prophets. So like I've said before, he, God is not like some uh, hunting cat, you know, when quietly and then pouncing uh, on you when you're not looking. But he makes a loud noise. He's the lion of Judah who roars before he pounces. And when he roars, his desire is that we run to him. He is the only place where we can find safety. 
but he also shows the consequences of not heeding his invitation. So he desires mercy, not sacrifice. If we ignore him, then there are consequences that follow, that follow later. He shows, he not only warns us, but he also shows us what is required. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He shows us what is required. This chesed, this, this relational cement between people who love one another deeply. This is what God desired. Right at the end of his creation, he made us in his own image. He made us in order to relate to him. And so when we mess up and we start dressing in fig leaf attire, he comes looking for us. Adam, where are you? Have you messed up? Let's talk like in Isaiah. Let's reason together. If you've messed up, we can put that uh, behind us as it were. That's called forgiveness. So it's not that God just turns the other way. Even in redeeming us, there is justice has to be has to be fulfilled, and hence the cross. So we cry out to Him. That is what He. That's what we need to do. Verse fourteen, in a sense, puts it negatively. They, they do not cry out to me from their hearts. In other words, what he's saying is that we're to cry out to him sincerely. We're to cry out to him from the heart. And then, of course, later at the end of this, this whole uh, book, in chapter 14, maybe I can just read uh, the instructions that God gives to his people as uh, he desires for them to return to him. Chapter 14 and verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And then forsaking some of the things that they were trusting in and crying only to the, to the Lord. So crying out to him from the heart. So when we come to the New Testament, we come to the, that, what I call the gospel tract, the systematic gospel tract, uh, we call the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul tells us exactly how God deals with, with sin. He, he paints a picture of our sinfulness, kind of like the way that Hosea does in the first chapter of, uh, uh, of Romans. And then the consequences of, uh, of that sin. I mean, even in this life, where God just lets us have our own way, and we end up just destroying ourselves as we invent more and more ways to sin. He addresses the sin among those who didn't think that they were sinners in chapter 2, the religious people. And he concludes in chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everyone is guilty under this judge's judgment. 
Everyone is guilty. And that is established. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. But God's feelings have been revealed. Chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God being revealed upon all the godlessness and wickedness of men. But he longs to acquit. And so we have Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. Or the way he puts it. In what I call the, uh, this brochure of a blessedness in Christ. The book of Ephesians. In chapter 2 he says... We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and that is how we lived, in which we walked. But God, because of his mercy, because of his desire to redeem us, made us alive. And he gave us life through the Lord Jesus, and the truth, the life, the way we find that in the Lord Jesus. We were dead in sins. But in mercy, he makes us alive, not just like in some kind of emergency room. Oh, you have you are flatlined and they shock you and oh, we've got him back. More than that, we're not just made alive, but we're actually exalted, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so the Apostle Paul starts with praise as he writes to the Ephesians. But we're seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We were powerless, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. We were powerless, but Christ died for us. And God is demonstrating his peculiar love. Romans chapter 8 and verse Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Roman uh, the, the Apostle Paul says God is demonstrating his own peculiar love in this that while we were still sinners. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this God that we're dealing with, uh, that is pictured in the message, that is speaking through, through Hosea, is a God who speaks a lot about the sin of the people of Israel, and he speaks that justly and truly, spelled out the consequences, and so on. But ultimately, he longs to redeem he longs for restoration. Kind of like the father of the prodigal. As soon as the prodigal appears in a distance, he's the one who's racing towards the sun. That's how eager he was. I don't think he was training for the 100 meter dash. I don't think he was particularly fit. But it just speaks of his heart. He runs to the, to the sun, covers him with kisses. And even before the son could, uh, uh, the son is busy trying to apologize and he's already arranging a big party for him. That is the heart of God. That is what God desires of all of us. Let me conclude in this way. The story of our sin is told just as it is. And your particular, my, in, in, in my case, uh, when I was confronted by the Lord Jesus, the story of my sin was not the same as some other people. And in a sense, my problem was that I had become satisfied with giving Jesus an honored place, as it were, 
in my government. I was still like the president, and he was the prime minister, and you know, I admired him, you know, and that kind of thing. I hung out with Christians, I, uh, I read the Bible, and, uh, uh, and tried to live by Christian standards, and so on. But he was not Lord of my life. And so he was very blunt with me. He who is not with me is against me. So he was basically calling me his enemy. He who does not gather with me scatters. You're a saboteur. I didn't like to hear that because I thought I was so friendly to him. I'd given him an honored place in my life and he was calling me his enemy. And in a sense, we're all, we're all uh, convicted of whatever it is that is a barrier between us and having a relationship with him. So the story of our sin, whatever it is, in the case of these people, God was very specific about their sins, the things that they did in their, in their day. Uh, he was very specific about their sins. That is what leads to conviction. Before a person is convicted, the charges are read, the uh, witnesses are called to assure, if, if it's a jury uh, making judgment, they're supposed to be convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that these things, these charges that are being brought against this person are true. That is justice. When somebody is, is, uh, uh, is sentenced without convincing evidence, then that's not justice. Our God is a just God. The story of our sin is told just as it is. As I said, that's where conviction comes from. And that's when people are told the truth about what they have done. They're able to say, like in Acts chapter 2, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Their heart is touched. What shall we do? And they're told to repent and submit to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus through that symbol of baptism. So we either oppose God or we replace him or we want to play games with him. The consequences of doing that are spelled out and we see that in these uh, these chapters. But there is a way back to God because he longs for the return of the wayward son and daughter. There is a way back to God because our God longs to redeem. So however far any of us may think we have wandered, however far we may have gone in that far of country, however far you may feel you are from God, you're only a repentant prayer away. Let them call from the heart. If they call on me sincerely, I'll be found. They search for me, I'll be found. God longs for a relationship. So if, if your relationship is because you have wandered whatever, well, I can say that he loves you. He longs for that close fellowship with him. If your life is a life of religion and you've never actually had a relationship with God, 
then I want to say to you that he's not satisfied with your religion. He's not interested in your religion. Like he says to the people of, of Isaiah's day, he wants a heart relationship with him, where he is your friend, where he is your God, where he is your father, where, where there is that intimate relationship with him, where he is able to guide you in the way you should go. This just judge longs to have quit our guilt, whatever that is. That's what John says. The man whom Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he says in his letter, if we say we have fellowship with him, but we're walking in a different, we're walking in darkness, then we lie, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he's true to his word, and just to forgive our sins. In other words, he doesn't just forgive our sins because he forgets about it. He forgives our sins because there is one who pleads our case. 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2, and verse 1. Yes, we may be sinners, but there is one who pleads our case, who says, Father, forgive them because I have paid for their sins. The one who made him sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Why? Because the judge that we read about in Hosea also longs to acquit and to reconcile us to himself. May we desire what God desires. May we share his desire, his relationship with us. May we desire to relate with him. May we be able to call him my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Whether it's in green pastures, whether it is in the valley of the shadow of death, whether it is surrounded by enemies, and you'll give us that assurance. That's one of the chief reasons the Holy Spirit came, to assure us, I shall live in his house forever. The Lord is my shepherd. He wants to be your shepherd. He wants to be my shepherd. Let's not push him away. Amen.